0: Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 Sponsored by Supervalue Insurance Driving value that matters on car, home and travel insurance Now that's sound
1: Well John Hume, dairyman teacher, politician, Nobel Prize winner, transformed politics in Northern Ireland and the history of this island through his powers of persuasion. His intelligence, his diplomacy and his dedication to human rights convinced people to listen to what he had to say. But not everyone along the way agreed with him, of course. well, Journalist and author Stephen Walker, former BBC Northern Ireland political correspondent, has written a new book about John Hume and he spoke to colleagues and critics alike and to John's family. The book is called John Hume the Persuader And Stephen is here in studio with me this morning. Stephen Walker, you're very welcome. Lovely to be here. I thought I knew everything about John Hume. People like you and me who covered the Troubles for decades probably came across him so much. But it's a fascinating book. There's loads of things in it I didn't know. Were you surprised by what you learned about Hume along the way?
0: Genuinely surprised. I mean, when John Hume died in 2020, um, and that's when I began thinking about this book, I thought... Here's a man that didn't lead one life, here's a man that led 30 lives. Um, He was an absolutely fascinating figure. Um, At one stage in his life, he probably thought he was going to be a priest. There was an expectation that it would be Father Hume uh, uh, and not John Hume MP or John Hume MEP or John Hume party leader. Um, So he had a very strong faith and faith is a very important part of his life. So there was an expectation that he would go into the church. That didn't happen. He became a teacher. He then became a fish salesman, which I knew very little about. He set up a, a salmon cooperative selling smoked salmon. And then he was a civil rights activist. He formed the credit union. And then slowly but steadily, he got involved in in politics, uh, became an independent representative and then got into the SDLP. And then there's the familiar history that we're all Mm. uh, very familiar with. So there was lots that I discovered. And I think people reading this book, even people like you and me who think we know everything about John Hume, hopefully at the end of the book, will say, well, look. I have learnt 25, 30 new things about John Hume. I mean, he could have gone into the BBC, for instance. He could have gone. And again, that is a fascinating story. He he got he got interested in filmmaking and he started to make films about Derry. And a job came up for a producer in the BBC. And now I knew about this because in a previous biography, Barry White had, had, had indicated about this. But we knew no more detail about that. But I was able to get hold of a document from the BBC that gives the detail of who eventually got the job the job eventually went to an individual called Davy Hammond who was a very mm-hmm. known uh, filmmaker but john hume was declared by the bbc and they use this phrase in the bbc and, and i'm 34 was 34 years in the bbc they use this phrase also suitable so he didn't get that job but it meant that if a job came up in another 12 months he could be offered it so he could have had a career as a filmmaker But it didn't happen. He decided to do other things.
1: Thank God for us all in Ireland. They only regarded him as also suitable. (laughs) But even the story, I was reading that clip yesterday, highlighted in the Irish Times, of how the impact on his family of all he did. Like, tell that story about his young daughter and the the attempt to kidnap her and how old she was only.
0: Well, Anya was very young and I have to pay tribute to the the Hume family, first of all, because they have contributed uh, enormously to this book uh, and I'm very grateful for their patience and for their kindness and their help. Now, This is not an authorised biography, so they have some idea of what is in the book, but they haven't seen the book. Um, But the family uh, have been absolutely terrific in terms of their assistance. The IRA had a plot uh, to kidnap uh, one of the Hume children. Obviously, they saw uh, John Hume uh, as a a political rival, um, and the family, throughout all the years uh, in Derry, were subjected to threats and violence from both sides, from Republicans and from Loyalists. And the family talk about living under that fear. And there was this attempt to uh, kidnap uh, Anya. Uh, The IRA picked up the wrong girl from school and they soon realized when they went through the books that the young girl had, it was a case of mistaken identity. They had actually kidnapped uh, a girl who looked very similar. So that's just one of the stories about the difficulties Mm. that the family had and, you know, I think Mo says to me in the book that sometimes it was quite hard being John Hume's daughter because you walk to school and you walked past the graffiti on the wall or you're in the house one night and petrol bombs were raining off the windows or people said something to you in the street. So, you know, she says to me in the book, you know, sometimes it wasn't cool to mm. be John Hume's daughter and they were right at the front line uh, and um, it was difficult for the Hume children, very difficult.
1: Yeah, because they'd walk back by that graffiti, Hume Traitor, which was huge up on that wall. Listen, to explain, John, to maybe younger people who don't know that much about him, he was very impacted by his upbringing in Derry. They weren't very wealthy. But tell us about his parents, Sam and Annie, and how they influenced John.
0: Well, Sam um, was um, very much community minded. And, and he had suffered various bouts of unemployment and that affected the family quite a lot. There wasn't much money around. They were a very poor family. And John, obviously well aware of that, actually took on a paper round and the money came into the family household. And he was slightly embarrassed about that because a teacher from St Columns saw him and he tried to hide from the teacher because I suppose he was trying to uh, shy away from the fact that the family didn't have much money. But actually the teacher was very proud of what he was doing and basically said, you know, well, your parents should be very proud of you, out mm-hmm. earning a few bob for the family. So there wasn't much money around. Um, his uh, mother, Annie, was uh, worked in uh, the, the the trade, the garment trade in, in, in Derry, and she took on extra work at night. And John helped her with that. He would keep notes of the various things that she did. And his dad um, had been... Um, in the civil service, uh, and he'd, he'd also been um, uh, in the in the army before, and he had immaculate handwriting. He had this brilliant handwriting, really good handwriting, and he was very articulate and very well read. And so, local people would often come in to see him to write letters. So, if they were challenging, maybe what the council had done or what a government department had done, and they needed to write a letter of complaint or a letter of appeal, people would come into the house. So, I think at a very early stage, John Hume understood the value of money Mm -hmm. because there wasn't much around, but he also understood community spirit and the need to help other people because he saw his parents do it. And I think he picked that up at a very early stage.
1: That's so interesting. We might actually take a clip of John Hume, actually. Now, this is way back when. I mean, you and I know, Stephen, people now take almost the peace process for granted and what happened. But way back in 68, he seemed to be so aware that there was a responsibility on all, sp- all sides responsible for their actions or inactions when you read back to 68 this is a clip actually from 1981 and actually it was when Bobby Sands was in hunger strike there was rioting on the streets of Derry two young men had just been killed in Derry when they were struck by a speeding army land rover but it's interesting just to listen to John A. for people to hear him speak and B. because he in this clip is really ignoring all the whataboutery of the North and saying that all sides need to be held responsible for their actions or inactions? Well the situation in Derry is very serious um, and uh, two young people have lost their lives Uh, what happened uh, uh, there is no uh, controversy about what happened, it was clear cut and uh, incontrovertible Uh, the army behaved recklessly and very irresponsibly, leading directly to the death of two people and the authorities should respond and they have been very slow to respond by making it clear that, 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 that the guilty will be brought to justice Um, in regard to the riot situation in the city of course uh, that has been going on for some time now and uh, any rioting in the present atmosphere and present circumstances is of course highly irresponsible because this community has long and bitter experience that the only people to suffer in riot situations are our own people. Where did he get that innate instinct Stephen that you know, there was responsibility on both sides and that the only way forward was to talk and to respect each other.
0: I think it comes from a number of sources. I don't think there's a single source. We spoke a moment ago about his family, his mother and father. I I think they had an innate sense of fairness Mm. and an innate sense of of one community rather than separate communities. So that's his, his childhood. I think he also picked up, a, a sense of fairness and justice when he went into Maynooth. I think that was there. I think while he was a teacher as well, a great understanding of education. So those are all, I mean, we're all shaped by our background. We're all shaped by, and in a sense, you know, Hume is shaped by Derry. Derry is Hume. You can't take, you, 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 they are interchangeable. So he's shaped by his family, he's shaped by Maynooth, he's shaped by his teaching, but also on the ground in Derry. He sees it. He sees people not getting jobs. He sees people not being allowed to go down streets. He sees people not being given the rights that he believes that they have. And he witnesses and sees the violence. So it's almost like a great sort of John Hume cocktail. Mm. All this is brought together. And that's why, you know, he is articulating in the way that he did in that clip.
1: And, of course, bringing in the Americans, people now regard that as obvious. But that was a huge thing. Wasn't it? I mean, that really made a huge difference.
0: Well, he, he he quickly learnt that um, Northern Ireland is not going to solve itself. And I think one of the things he learnt from the collapse of Sunningdale was that, you know, there's not there, there couldn't be another internal solution in Northern Ireland without assistance from outside. So that meant assistance from Dublin. That meant assistance from London and Europe, and obviously later on he became an MEP, but it also meant America. So he went to America and, and, you know, he'd he'd started this relationship with with Ted Kennedy. And in fact, when Ted Kennedy first approached him, he wanted to see him, Ted Kennedy had heard about him and said, well, Ted Kennedy, I think was in Germany and, and asked him to come over. Hume thought it was a prank. Hume thought somebody was winding him up. He said, why would Ted Ted Kennedy? And so he started this relationship with Ted Kennedy. Then there was a relationship with Tip O'Neill and Tip O'Neill introduced him. And uh, at a time when President uh, Carter was president, uh, Tip O'Neill was a very important figure. And through O'Neill, Hume got to Carter. And Carter then released this statement about Northern Ireland. Now, if you and I read it now, it seems quite anodyne and a bit Mm. bland, but it was the first time, really, that an American administration had issued a statement on Ireland... Without looking over its shoulder at Britain, in the past, American administrations would have sort of shown it to the UK authorities and said, is this is this okay? And they would have said, oh, well, we'd like you to water that down a bit and don't say that bit or don't say that bit. But this was the Americans saying, well, actually, we're going to do this on our own terms. And that was the start of a relationship. And it's interesting, you know, talking to other politicians from different parties, they were always envious of the fact that Hume had put, the the legwork in earlier on. He'd gone to see people, he'd had meetings, he'd constantly gone out to America and it reached a point, critical points in the peace process, when things would land in the White House before an American administration would make a decision. They would simply ask the question, what does John Hume say? Hmm. John Hume became the point of reference for the White House. That is how strong his influence was and he had organised that and and that had developed through his own hard work.
1: But obviously there were difficult moments in it because one of the great stories in your book that I didn't really know in much detail was the resignation story, the Mark Durkin story. Tell us about that.
0: That to me is a fascinating story and it's so fascinating that that begins the start of the book. So Hume was under a lot of pressure. There was a lot of criticism in the newspaper. There was criticism... Um, from within his party,
1: 1992,
0: 1992, yes. Uh, in in and uh, he uh, he was down in the dumps, uh, and he was just fed up of of uh, sniping and concerns. And there was an attempt to get the talks process back up and running, and people within the party had misgivings not about talking, but about the format. So they weren't saying, they were all saying, yes, we have to talk, but they were concerned about the format. But Hume wanted to give it another go. So um, Mark Durkin, who obviously um, was his assistant, was his confidant, eventually became his successor at Westminster and obviously became party leader, very well trusted by the Humes. He gets a phone call from Pat to say you've got to come to the house. John's wife. Yes. Uh, Again, is an essential part of this story. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I do talk about Pat quite a lot in the book. And Mark Durkin realises by the tone of her voice that something is up and he arrives at the Hume house and John Hume has written out a resignation statement, which he is minutes away from giving to the press association. And Durkin has to basically talk him down from the ledge and basically say... No, you can't do this. The repercussions of you resigning are are so strong or so severe. And he then it then becomes a scenario whereby the apprentice, who is Mark Durkin, mm-hmm. then becomes the master and starts sort of outhuming Hume by giving Hume. He said, "You always said you don't react to reaction. Well, why are you reacting to reaction? Mm-hmm. And so slowly but steadily, over some minutes, Durkin talks Hume Ryan said, well, look, let's just take a break. Go to Donegal because they had this house in Donegal where he went to try and relax at weekends. Go to Donegal. Let's just be calm about this. Let's just try and take the heat out of this situation. Let's not do this. Hume at this stage was talking about leaving politics, was talking about um, uh, Durkin taking over at Westminster. So Durkin really had to work hard that morning and eventually reached a point where they agreed... The, the statement that, you, that you've that you got there is going nowhere. And um, uh, Durkin got hold of the statement and, and then calmed the situation. And then as he was leaving, Pat mouthed to uh, Mark Durkin, thank you, thank you. She was mightily relieved that obviously this wasn't taking place. And then John very cleverly said to Mark Durkin, I'll have the resignation statement back. Thank you. And then Durkan had to go on for a day's campaigning and he drove to Belfast. So by the time that Durkan got in his car to drive to Belfast, he had done a day's work. He had stopped the resignation. And that is right at the start of the book. And that is a brand new story. I had never heard that story before.
1: It's amazing how the course of Irish history could have been changed if, if, if that hadn't stopped In ni- it.
0: 1992, six, six years before the Good Friday Agreement.
1: Another interesting thing is Mary McAleese. She believes that he he would have been a shoo-in for our presidency to be the president of this
0: country. That's yeah. That's her view. I mean, he, his stock was high Uh, every political party uh, south of the border uh, would have been uh, backing him had he thrown his hat in the ring. Um, There there was a lot of pressure coming from various quarters. Um, You know, Mary Robinson had had decided uh, that that her days as president were over and Hume was being talked about as president. They considered it. Mary McAleese says in the book that it was his for the taking. Uh, It was considered in discussions in France. Some of the family members weren't desperately keen. If you read the story in the book, um, I mean, one of the sons says he didn't think his dad would be a particularly good president or would have <laughs> been a particularly good president. He said, how would he have sat through rugby matches and various things like that? So, yeah. um, but it was there in Mary McAleese's eyes. It was there for the for the taking. Colin McDevitt, who worked for John Hume, said the timing was wrong. Uh, this, bearing in mind, this is 1997. So, you know, had it been after the Good Friday Agreement, then things perhaps would have been different. But then we know what happened in 1998.
1: And when we come now to the end of our discussion, you've spent so long writing this book. It's superb. I mean, when you look back at his place in history, I suppose, I mean, along the way, the parties in the middle got sacrificed, like the SDLP, the UP, they've all shrunk. But what do you think his place is now in Irish history? I mean, way back when he was saying things like difference is an accident of birth and it should never be the source of hatred or conflict. I mean, he got that very early on.
0: He did. And if you look at his early career, he talked in an Irish Times article in the 1960s about consent at a time when people weren't talking about consent. He talked about reforming the police service in the 1970s. Remember, the, the PSNI didn't arrive till after the Good Friday Agreement. He talked about north-south relations way before anybody else, east-west relations way before anybody else. He was a politician uh, ahead of his time, he was a thinker, um, he was creative, he had a great ability to analyse things, but he was a complex man, he, mm. he was a difficult man. I mean, this book is not a hagiography and no. ne- neither is it a hatchy job. I think it is a fair and balanced account. He, he was difficult at times. He would go silent. Uh, a civil servant told me you could drive from Derry to Dublin with John in the car and he wouldn't <laughs> issue a word. You had to know sometimes when John was in speaking mode or listening mode. And, um, you know, he, he, he also was slightly obsessed with his health. Reg Empey said the worst question you could ask John <laughs> Hume was, how are you? Because you'd be there for about five hours. So like us all, <laughs> yes. he had his flaws and he had his faults. But I think his place in Irish history is assured.
1: It's a fascinating book. Um, John Hume, The Persuader. I'm actually interviewing you publicly in the RDS in November the 12th about this book. And you're going around the north many places y- yes, now, Yes, we you? have a
0: little book tour. We're in Bangor. We're in Downpatrick. We're in Derry. We're in Coal Island. We're in Belfast. We're all over the place. And it would be lovely to see people.
1: Well, Stephen, congratulations. John Hume, The Persuader, published by Gale Books. This is superb read. Thank you very much for coming to be my guest this morning. Thank you. We'll take a break.